Yo, we're talking episode 17 with the one and only Dr. Kate Mulligan. We'd be throwing down some social prescribing, yo. And this episode is exactly what it sounds like when doves cry. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 17 already. I'm so glad you guys have been tuning in and listening and engaging. So excited about what we've been doing. And I want to tell you about today's episode. So if there's going to be one lesson you're going to take away from this episode is that if we want our patients, our community to be healthier, to be more resilient, and to have more purpose we need to be engaging our community. This is the beauty of social prescribing. In this episode, you'll hear Kate talk about simple measures as a cooking class or a bereavement community can make a huge impact on a patient's life. So I can't wait for you guys to hear this episode. But before that, I'm going to tell you about our sponsors, BetterHelp. I love these guys. This is an online counseling service that provides accessible, affordable, and convenient counseling to those in need. And whether it's a struggling teen, whether it is couple counseling, whether it's healthcare providers that are struggling with compassion fatigue, they provide all these services. And this is through video chat. This is through texting. This is through email. This is through phone calls. So it's convenient. It's reliable. They provide an amazing service. So Use promo code Solving Healthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. I'm super excited to tell you about our second sponsor, Audible.com. And I don't know if a lot of you are book listeners, but I've transitioned to listening to most of my books about five years ago through Audible, and it's completely changed my game. Like I went from reading a book a year on vacation to listening to anywhere from 12 to 18 books a year. And honestly, I don't know we'd be doing the show right now if it wasn't for some of the books that I, that I listened to, for example, the four hour work week or the 80, 20 principle, all these had helped enhance my productivity. So I'm a big fan. I know my wife, I know my mother-in-law, we're all audible members. So, you know, if you use the link attached to the show notes, you get a free month of the audible service. And if you do sign up, it's, you go a book a month plus two audible originals a month plus 30% off any uh, additional uh, books that you, you purchase. So I love these guys. I love this service, and it's a game changer. Next, I want to give a quick shout out to Sarah, who has helped really amped up our merchandise content. It, it's killer. The sales have gone up a ton since she's amped it up. And once again, all our profits are going towards a charity of the month, which currently is Ottawa Inner City Health. And as you may recall, we are doing a contest right now. If you purchase any merchandise from Solvent Healthcare and promote it on social media, the one that gets the most reaction on social media will get to choose the next charity. 
So uh, we've already had a couple posts and uh, I'm really excited about this contest. All right, on to the show. We are talking with Kate Mulligan, Director of Policy and Communication at the Alliance for Healthier Communities. She's an assistant prof with with the University of Toronto through the Division of Social and Behavioral Health Sciences. She got a PhD at McMaster's in 2013, and she today is going to talk to us about the magic of social prescribing. And as I mentioned before, this is a simple intervention that engages the community, allows for a more resilient population, and it's inexpensive, and it's scalable, and we should be amping this up. And I love it because it's legit transforming healthcare. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Kate Mulligan. We got Kate Mulligan. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Oh, we're really excited to have you on. As people might have heard in the intro, what you're doing is magical. And people need to hear about social prescribing. So, Kate, can we just start with what exactly is social prescribing? Social prescribing is a tool that people can use to help reconnect patients, clients, communities with community. It's a way to leverage the healthcare visit to uh, reconnect people with social services and start addressing their social determinants of health. Wow. Okay. So clearly, you know, from the medical literature, it's social determinants of health is a huge component to overall well-being. So how exactly is this addressed? Like, how do we, how do you prescribe social prescribing? Yeah. So the literature shows that 80 to 90% of our health is determined by factors that are outside the healthcare system from Mm -hmm. material stuff like housing and income to more social and mental health things, including sense of belonging and community. And so social prescribing uh, recognizes that and give some healthcare providers the tools to start taking action. You know, healthcare providers have known this for quite a while, but haven't quite had enough resources or know-how to know what to do about it in their setting. And so social prescribing gives them something to do, a point of action to take, and it helps them to feel more joy in their work because they are finally taking action on something that they know is really important. I love it. I love it. Okay. So describe to us or what your program is like, how are you bringing this to Ontario? Yeah. Okay. So right now we're just wrapping up a pilot that took place in 11 community health centers in very different kinds of settings across Ontario. So community health centers and their partners at the Alliance for Healthier Communities include Aboriginal health access centers, nurse practitioner led clinics and community governed family health teams. And these are all models of primary care that for 50 years have been including social services as part of health. So include community development, include health promotion, include a wide uh, team of primary health care providers all under one roof um, and work with other community partners. So that's been part of the model for a really long time. But what we're doing in social prescribing is better connecting the different parts of the model, because what was happening was that we would have a clinical health care side of the house and a social care side of the house, and they weren't necessarily connected in a deliberate way. Mm. So social prescribing allows for those clinical providers to connect people in a deliberate way with health and social services outside of their clinic, um, but maybe still under the same roof. And it has a few other features that I think are really important. One is that that referral is supported. So it's not just written down on a piece of paper and off you go. 
get the support of a link worker who might even go with you to the first few classes or the first few events to help you uh, feel comfortable and ensure that you're able to follow through on your social includes co-design, which means the person receiving the referral has as much power and as much influence as the person giving the referral. Um, and so they work together to co-create a solution that makes sense for that person in that context for what they need. It might be rediscovering your love of knitting. It might be getting out with a fishing buddy. It's whatever makes sense to you and you have as much to offer. And then finally, I think one of the most important things is that it's tracked. So for the first time, we're able to see what the health impact and what the health system utilization impact is of these social services that we provide, we've been providing for a really long time, but um, have been interpreted by many across the healthcare system as a cost and not an asset. And so now we're able to measure whether it improves people's health. Wow. Okay. I got so many comments and thoughts. Okay. So basically you are working with these 11 I don't want to call them communities or what, what would you describe them? 11 like centers. centers. Yep. Yes. Centers. And you're working with the infrastructure they have already and you have facilitators or like people that help them link with the, the activities that they're planning on doing. You got the opportunity for the patient to have a say in how they want to be able to execute on the prescription. And the, it, like, it's all well supported is what I'm hearing. Yeah, that's the model. Wow. And so we also have a shared electronic medical record, which really helps us do that tracking and start really measuring the results. And that's where we're going to start seeing some of the power. I love it. I love it. So can you give a couple examples of s- some of the things that would be uh, prescribed? So you gave an example, for example, of, of hooking up with a fishing buddy. Mm-hmm. Any other examples come to mind? Yeah, here's a recent one from a man named Stuart. He requested a same-day appointment to see his nurse practitioner, um, but it turns out that the reason he was there was that he had recently lost his wife of over 50 years, and he was just struggling. And so the NP suggested that he attend this after-grief support program, and since then, he's really been attending regular and starting to feel better, and even started talking about doing some solo traveling. So overall, he's starting to feel better and um, he, he was able to get this support without requiring medication. And that won't be the case for everybody, but it was the case for Stuart. Wow. And, you know, so a guy, Stuart, going through a tough time, you know, maybe in the spot where it'd be hard to be functional after experiencing such a loss, but being able to have that community sense and, you know, he was able to potentially recover quicker from such an unfortunate event. Yeah. Wow. And so here's, here's another one. There's a friendly visiting group in one of the health centers where people who were on the receiving end of social prescriptions decided that they wanted to give back. And so they became friendly visitors for other people in the community. Wow. So they visit on a weekly basis. And these are the folks that see the most dramatic improvement in self-reported health outcomes. People who go from perceiving themselves as someone with an illness or a deficit or a problem to someone who has something to offer and can be a leader in their community, those people who really start to thrive see the best self-reported health outcome. And it's really, really uh, inspiring to see. Wow. And you think about how powerful that is too. Like when you are going through a tough time or experiencing whether, you know, in, in Stuart's case, a loss or you're struggling from a functional point of view, and you could talk to somebody that is, has gone through the exact same experience and come out through the other side. That's yeah, right. And like, that's just so 
it's I don't know. It's that's powerful. It gives you a, a sense that it gives you hope, essentially. It really does, and it shows the important role that peers can play so that we move beyond just community engagement or patient engagement to real leadership um, by people who are peers who have some expertise and lived experience that no one else has. Beautiful. Kate, I, I love this so much. I maybe um sorry, I know my kids screaming. <laughs> I love it. You have to keep it in because it's real life. And that's yeah, what this is actually, about. You know what? That's, you know what? That is fair. Yeah. Listeners, listen, this is my dedication to this. I wanted to get Kate on so badly. And then we got two sick kids at home. I, I was like, we're not delaying this. We're getting this out there. So I apologize for the kids screaming. That's real life. I like that. I like that. Listen, flow. Quadro, this is about supporting you and your lived experience <laughs> and your life as a parent of young kids. Have been there. I get it, and oh real life is part of what we do. And social prescribing is really just part of recognizing that and supporting it. I love it. Yeah, Kate, we were just talking before. Uh, she's got uh, an eight-year-old and twin five-year-olds, which I, I I can't even imagine going through that bucket. But uh, yeah, thanks Hashtag for taking the truth. time. Truth. Yeah, I love it. Um, so <laughs> I gotta ask, like. How did you get involved in this and why? Like what led you to this, this, uh, what's the word, route or this yeah. uh, journey? Uh, like what, what got you here? So we started the work of social prescribing about two years ago, but the seeds were planted over many, many years before that. So as I mentioned, the community health centers and others follow a model of health and well-being that really subscribes to that wraparound model. It's anti-oppressive. It's rooted in community development. It's run by community boards of regular folks and clients from the community, but already cares about that stuff. One of the things that was missing was this measurement and intentionality and co-design in the tracking. Mm. So um, we, we recognized that that was important. Um, and a few years ago, we also uh, undertook research under the Canadian Index of Wellbeing. Uh, where all the participating community health centers use this index, um, which includes a whole bunch of different broader indicators about how communities are doing to see how their own communities were faring and where they needed to be targeting resources. And one theme that really shone through through that work was the importance of community belonging mm-hmm. as a determinant of health and well-being. And so we were already very interested in belonging. And then we started to pay attention to what was happening globally. And one of the big innovations was coming out of the UK through social prescribing. So we got connected with a couple of different providers of social prescribing schemes and people who did it in different kinds of ways. And uh, when a grant opportunity arose through the Ministry of Health under their health and well-being grant stream, uh, we jumped at the opportunity to bring those mentors from the UK and plug them into our model and see what magic might happen. And that's how we got to where we are today. Wow. That, no, that's amazing because um, it sounds like this was just, and don't let me put words in your mouth, it was just like a way to serve it's a way of like you'd sound like you were inspired by what you were uh, seeing or hearing about in the uk and thought we could bring that home essentially yeah we knew we had almost all the elements in place to make this happen and so we were able to take that grant and plow it into the mentorship and the research without having to give the participating community health centers a lot of money because what we didn't want to do was give an unsustainable sort of worker for a year and then have to take them away when the grant ended So we repurposed existing resources to make it happen, and we plugged the money into bringing folks from the UK to work with the centers and then to do the research and evaluation. And so our final research report will be out at the end of March, and we're really excited to be sharing the results with everybody. I love it. So you've helped make these centers 
sustainable, regardless of whether there's going to be financing from the grant afterwards or whatnot. That's right. it, 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 that is beautiful. Let me tell you, Kate, I know, I know I'm hyped, I'm hyped up about this, but it's like, it's legit changing the boogie. It's like really transforming healthcare, putting it into the hands of the community yeah. form, and like being engaged with them. And so you're making them healthier, like not only physically, but also mentally, they're going to have that better sense of well-being, the better sense of community. Yeah. It is what we are lacking right now in healthcare. Yeah. And the beauty of it is that it can be scaled up outside of our center. So we already had many of the resources in place. We would benefit from more full-time link workers to be able to do this work to really scale it up. And so what we have proposed to the government and we have the um, support of other primary healthcare organizations, including the Association of Family Health Teams of Ontario, is, you know, more link workers to make this happen in all the primary care teams across the province. Mm. And so we are ready to do that. We're proposing it now. I think it will happen, if not right away over the next couple of years, because the model is just so promising. And it can be used to address material needs too. So although we focus a lot on social isolation and belonging, some centers are using it to do things like food on prescription, arts on prescription, um, support with tax filing forms and rental wow. applications. Um, so it can be used for many of those more material things. And that's really important for our centers because we focus on health equity and reducing inequities in health for communities and people who face particular barriers to accessing health and to having good health outcomes. Wow. Like this, <laughs> I'm just, I'm blown away just because there's, there's so much good too. Like it, you're, you're hitting up vulnerable patient groups yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, um, like you you mentioned an indigenous group. Any other ones that come to mind, actually, before? Yeah, my- so we have um, an Angus Reid study from a couple of years ago about loneliness across Canada found that more than half of us are feeling really excluded or isolated or lonely, and that that's compounded for people who are from marginalized groups. So if you're from Two-Spirited and LGBTQ population, if you're indigenous, if you're a senior, if you're Black or racialized, uh, if you're a Francophone in a majority Anglophone community, these people are feeling isolated and excluded. So yes, we do try to focus on those. We have a program in a remote Francophone community in Temiskaming. We have programs at Centertown Community Health Center in Ottawa, where you are, focused on LGBTQ populations. So every community is adapting this work to the where they are and who they serve. Oh, wow. Just, I keep saying... Uh- how beautiful this is, is because it is so beautiful. Just out of curiosity, is there anything else happening in Canada that's similar to this or other places in Ontario, as far as you know? Yes, it is starting to happen more and more. And we hear from people all across Canada and the world regularly. So for example, the United Way of the Lower Mainland in British Columbia is running a pilot on social prescribing focused on frail seniors um, mm. in combination with their Ministry of Health there. Um, here in Ontario, 211 is doing something they call closed loop referrals with community paramedicine um, and primary care. Um, and again, so 211 is a database that helps connect people to community and social services. So it's uh, also trying to do that work, connecting people who might be calling 911 when what they really need is uh, some social care or friendship, um, then they're able to kind of make those connections So and, and to track the outcomes. So we're starting to see increasing interest and in different kinds of models crop up, and it's really, really great to see. And so this might be hard to answer, but, you know, I, I'm hoping oh, there's many listeners 
out there thinking to themselves, like, I, I could be bringing this to my community. I could be helping scale this, uh, you know, and, and I can help scale this in my center. Is there a lot of startup costs you think associated with this? Like, I know we're using, ideally using resources that are already in place in, in some of these centers, but did you find that there's a, a, a like a cost prohibitiveness to this? No. So, you know, you can start with a box of board games and a fishing rod in your, in your closet and build from there. I think the most important thing to have is connections with community resources in your area. So you need to know what's available. In the UK, one of the challenges they're facing is what they call too many travel agents and not enough holidays. So they've invested in over a thousand of these link workers for social prescribing, but what are they going to prescribe people to? It's not always mm. self-evident. Here in Ontario, we do have uh, lots of things that people can be prescribed to, particularly for those very ma- marginalized and vulnerable people. As it becomes more mainstream, we may need to revisit that and ensure that we have the right kinds of investments. But right now we do have it. You just need to know what's available in your community. You need to have a good way to track through your electronic medical record or some other way, um, the benefits and the, and the impact and mm-hmm. um, any challenges that arise also. And uh, those are the main things that you need. Beyond that, you need uh, an appreciation for the social determinants of health, an appreciation mm-hmm. for co-design and the role of the voice of people in their own health care. And the sky is the limit. Yeah. I, and I, I must admit, like my, our uh, essentially executive producer of the show, Laura Thompson, she's a big um, public health researcher and it's been great to have on the team. She pointed out she's the one that pointed out your, your work. And, you know, me being like, I'm not in primary care, but, you know, obviously in acute care, we had no idea about the level of resources in the community, or even this concept in general. So, you know, I think as one of the things that would be awesome is to just really illustrate to our, our colleagues and our primary care workers and all that, that these resources exist and that, you know, this is a smart way to approach the patient's needs. It really is. And there are many physicians and other team-based providers in primary care who are feeling on the verge of burnout. And this mm-hmm. is the kind of thing that can help because it, it helps support those patients that keep people up at night. It mm-hmm. helps clinicians to focus on their clinical care that they're trained for, but still feel confident that they're um, patient social needs are being met and their more material social determinants and, and so on are also being met. Um, and so, you know, we are really now starting to focus on that next generation of healthcare providers. So I have two Smart. medical students working with me now, um, Jennifer Zhang and Krish Bilamoria from the University of Toronto. Um, and so, you know, they will be part of that cohort that's going to be trained uh, on this kind of thing so that they do know no matter where they land, no matter what um, path they take or specialization they pursue, they'll know about what's available in the community and how that this is possible. And it is, and it could be and should be part of what we consider to be health and healthcare. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not young anymore. And it's been a long time since I got through medical school. But I don't, off the, like off the top of my head, I don't recall having any focus on social determinants of health and, you know, the value of the social supports. And so what you're doing, teaching the kids, you know, while they're still impressionable, I think is genius. And I, in fact, I'm wondering, this really should be a component of their education. 
You know, like I, I think we all like to me, obviously prevention is key and early intervention is key, but something that is really going to be impactful and is inexpensive and is, you know, better than for many people, better than scaling up their medication and, 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 and so on. I, I think, you know, that's, an, that's another great point. Like we, yeah. we need to be like hitting the youth with this message. Yeah, I mean, this isn't going to be a replacement for good clinical care for people who need it. It's not going to be a replacement for good public policy that will address and prevent many social issues before they arise, like having enough housing for everybody and sufficient income and that kind of thing. Um, but it's one piece of support that we have been missing um, that really elevates the social within the healthcare system and helps provide better connections for people. Um, so yeah, I think it should be part of clinical training. And the benefits for clinicians that we're finding in our research are just astounding. So you know, over from the three months in, lots of providers weren't still weren't totally sure that this was going to work for them. By the end of nine months only of this pilot, 97.6% felt that social prescribing should, was a legitimate part of their role. Wow. 89.6% believed that it was improving their client's health and well-being. Wow. And it, we went from about 6% to 48.1% believing that it was reducing the visits for mm. their clients. So really, really dramatic change in, in a six-month period. Um, and so if we're able to keep this up over a longer period, um, we're expecting to see more and more interest, more support, more buy-in, and then more of that quantitative research that will really um, help us to, you know, some people require that for, to feel that this is legitimate, even though there's been, you know, many, many years of research about the benefits of things like exercise and being around other people and being in mm. nature and so on. Oh, man. Growing evidence base is a really big part of it. You know, the thing too, Kate, is one thing that's clear to me is when a, a patient has that sense of well-being, no matter what illness that they come in with, they do better. You know, they're more likely to get out of bed and exercise to get to reduce the amount of deconditioning. They're, they're going to participate with the physiotherapist. They're going to participate with the nurse. They're going to finish their meals and, and optimize their nutrition. So there's a lot of nudges there too, you know, like even, you know, a lot of these things will prevent them ideally from coming into hospital or, or reduce the amount of uh, doctor visits. But also if they are sick, this will have a great impact in their care. So, yeah. And I think, I think that's a really important point because it doesn't have to happen just in primary care. Um, so that's where we work and that's where we do it. And I think it's a, one of the most important parts because primary care is where that long-term relationship with people happens, but it can be used in hospital um, and has been used in hospital in Singapore, for example, where they do a lot of work with re in rehab hospitals, community hospitals to support people to do things like gardening and other functional activities with mm. others to support the return to community. And so certainly at any stage of your healthcare journey, this can be a appropriate. I love it. We have, uh, so let me throw down some stats here for you. This is pretty cool. The throw Canadian, down Kate Ball again. The Canadian Community Health Survey, 2013-2014. This was highlighted in the Chief Medical Officer of Health for Ontario's report about community connectedness and belonging that came out last year. 6% increase in fruit and vegetable consumption when you have a strong sense of community belonging. 20% increase in good mental health. 19% increase in good general health. 12% decrease in heavy smoking, 12% decrease in physical inactivity, 7% decrease in severe obesity, 5% decrease in chronic conditions. Like this is really, really impressive for something that is, you know, was difficult to measure and address not that long ago. That is beautiful. And I'm, I mean, 
I don't even know what to say. Like it's, there's evidence there. There's, I think it's time. It's time that we need to scale that up, spread the word, get this moving. Okay, you know what I'm Yeah, it's really, really doable, particularly when we partner with other people. And so that's why the Ontario Health Teams context is actually a really big opportunity for something mm-hmm. like social prescribing. Teams are already being asked, how are you integrating social care, municipal services, and public health, and so on? How are you doing prevention, which is being described now as one of the key pillars of Ontario Health Teams? Mm-hmm. How are you connecting with community? How are you engaging with patients, families, and communities? All that stuff is part of it. And so this is like a plug and play solution that can be adapted locally and can have really dramatic impacts in a pretty short time. Absolutely. You know, and I I told you this uh, a couple few weeks back when we were talking about the show, but if you ever need help, you know, especially doing a cost evaluation of these programs, like Resource Optimization Network, we are your huckleberry. Like this is something that we would be totally excited about. I know you've got a research team working on other outcomes, but certainly if you need that side of things, we would be amped up to collaborate. You know okay, here's the, okay, here's the thing. We need it. We want it. We're making a deal right now live. <laughs> Boom. It's, it's out there in the cyber world, yo. Like it's, you know. <laughs> And I want anyone who's listening to know we need you too. We need individuals, we need researchers, we need students, we need families, we need people going through healthcare right now, we need providers, like we need everybody on board doing their little piece of it. And the resource measurement is really important for helping us make an argument for how and why and and where to scale it up. You heard it here, y'all. Kate and Karen Mantank throwing down, letting you know, connect, make let's make this happen. So you, I always like to end on a, on a high note, and you've told us earlier about a positive story. Any other positive stories that come to mind, Kate, about such social prescribing programs? Here's a positive story about scaling it up. Um, so I was in the UK in the summertime because we received uh, the, an award, the first ever global award for social prescribing. And yes. it was partly because of our focus on health equity and making this happen in communities right across the province. So I was really thrilled about that. Had the opportunity to meet with Prince Charles. What? Yes, there is (laughs) photographic evidence. Oh man, we gotta put that uh, on our website. And to talk with other people from other countries about the work they're doing. And so we're part of a growing global movement about social prescribing. And I'm really thrilled that in places like Australia, for example, they're using our model in Ontario as part of their thinking as they develop their approach to scaling it up in their 10-year healthcare plan. So as part of that work, um, James Sanderson, who's the Director of Personalized Care for NHS England and the incoming CEO for their new National Academy on Social Prescribing, is coming here to Ontario at the end of March to help us launch our report. Wow. I, I mean, I, I got so many things to say. I mean, this might be inappropriate, but when you met, when you met Prince Charles, what do you, what do you do? Do you curtsy? Do you like, uh, what do you do? I have no idea what you do when you meet a prince. Oh, I got the lowdown before going in, but actually it was, <laughs> it was fairly casual. We went to his uh, organic farm and saw the commitment to community that he has. And of course it's fraught. We're a former colony. There's lots of strangeness about that encounter. But it was nice to see his support for social prescribing and for unity. 
and yeah. um, and to be with other people from around the world who also felt the same way and were trying to advance the same things. Um, and so it was it was special. And it started this conversation with James, who is now my friend and colleague. And we regularly talk about how to scale this up because here's what happened in the UK. It went from idea with isolated pilots and so on to nationwide implementation right across the UK in less than three years. Wow. So they now have over, yeah, they have over a thousand link workers and they're hiring more and it's happening. And so we've been working together to try to help figure out how do we scale it that rapidly here? Can we, should we, and so on. And we feel pretty strongly that we can do this and we can do this quickly. And uh, so he's going to be here to help launch that. The Minister of Health, Christine Elliott, will be there to introduce him. And Mm. it's going to be a super great night on March 25th. So if you happen to be in the Toronto area, it'll be at the Dalalana School of Public Health. Beautiful. We'll put that in the show notes for real. Obviously, this all sounds great on paper. Maybe you could tell us a bit about the UK experience. Do they actually find any differences in outcomes? They really did. And it varies by community. So um, several local studies have shown dramatic decreases in access and emergency visits, which is emergency room, emergency department visits. So a decrease in 25% uh, seen in the ER during the time in which social prescribing was being implemented, um, that kind of thing. And they're also doing some pretty neat stuff with big data. And so looking at longitudinal data from people whose lives started in the 1940s all the way until now and finding things like uh, a 272% increased chance of recovering from depression just by taking up a hobby. Wow. And so between the the direct uh, evaluations of the work they're doing and then some of these big data analyses of the kinds of things to which people might be prescribed, uh, they're starting to come up with a more robust evidence base. Amazing. Here in Ontario, we are starting to see improvements as well. So we have people, participants reporting um, strong improvement in their sense of belonging and connectedness and strong improvements in their mental health and well-being. So their mood, their anxiety and depression symptoms, their sense of self-confidence and purpose and that kind of thing. So we're really starting to see impacts here too. That's, that's awesome, Kate. Three years and they scaled it up that quickly. I got to say, that's, that's pretty impressive because, I mean, I live in Ottawa. Nothing happens quickly out here. No. And so, like, whatever, I'm not sure what they did or, like, what the secret was, but that is mad impressive. It's impressive, and it's impressive under um, a conservative government that was going through a lot of turmoil there at the time. They were going through Brexit. Um, the NHS is facing a lot of resource constraints. And so to pull this off in the middle of all that, I think, speaks to the power of social prescribing, that it seemed like something that was doable, community-oriented, and was going to save money and make people healthier uh, and support them to take more ownership of their own health and well-being. It's really remarkable. Beautiful. I love it. I love it, Kate. So. I want to say thank you for agreeing to do this show. As I mentioned, you're doing great work and it's inspiring. I love how enthusiastic you are about it. I love the fact that you are getting this scaled up. I love the fact that you're changing the boogie big time. Like there's not many people that could say that is changing the look of healthcare like you are. And it started off, you know, humbly and it's going to be massive i have great feelings about this and i truly mean it what we could whatever we could do to contribute you heard it here on the quadcast we're going to throw down okay for real i i love i love it i cannot wait to work together it's going to be awesome it's going to be awesome for real
any resources in terms of uh, how to make this happen for our listeners? Yes. So if you go to our website at allianceon.org, you'll see our project. It's called Prescription Community, RX Community. We have a one-hour webinar that really walks you through step-by-step what to do uh, in your communities, no matter what your starting point is, whether it's public health, primary care, community and social services, arts, other parts of healthcare, you name it. Um, And we have lots of other resources there, including our midterm report from June, which includes a how-to guide that also gives you some tips on how to get started, some of the nice stories that we have, a list of participating centers and the way they tailored social prescribing to their own communities and their own needs. Um, and all that stuff. And of course, we'll have our final report out in March and we'll be able to share that too. Amazing. Thank you so much. And you have a great day. (laughs) I don't know how to end up. How do I end up? Do something that makes you feel healthy and well today. Be with your kids, go for a walk, listen to music, something that makes you feel like you and makes you feel like you belong in your community. And where you don't have that yet, let's start building it. Absolutely. So for me right now, I'm going to do an interpretive dance. This is uh, (laughs) out on the lawn with my megaphone and just uh, (laughs) see what happens. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much for doing this. Okay. Thank you. Now that is what I'm talking about. Episode 17. I'd like to thank our guest, Kate Mulligan. I'd like to thank you guys for listening. Just a couple of reminders. Uh, our ongoing contest through merchandise, purchase merchandise and post it on social media and get a chance to choose our next charity. Any comments, leave at quadcast99 at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at quadcast. Want to do a quick shout out to Bradley. Uh, he's the host of Physician's Guide to Doctoring and it's a killer podcast. I got to make a an appearance on that show and uh, we'll let you know when it airs, but just I love what Bradley's doing. He's trying to promote how to be a better doctor with skills that you don't acquire in medical school, which, you know, I think is a beautiful thing. So much love to Bradley and what he's doing. want to thank our sponsors, BetterHelp and Audible.com. Once again, if you sign up with Audible, you get a free month of their service, and it will also help support the show because we're Amazon affiliate members. So really appreciate that. One last shout out. I want to shout out to Omar Kiki, one of our team members that has really helped with marketing and social media. So shout out to Omar. And honestly, thank you everyone for listening and we'll connect soon.